So a lot of these um, experiences that basically are fundamentally adaptive for us um, will release dopamine. And we've evolved over millions of years to approach these kinds of dopamine releasing substances and behaviors, because for most of human existence, that is adaptive for us, right? Finding food, finding clothing, finding a warmth and shelter, finding a mate, um, having uh, you know collective religious experiences that um, more tightly bind the social group together. These are all highly adaptive. The problem is that now we have so much access to so many reinforcing drugs and behaviors, and they're so much more potent, and the quantity is endless, that now we've got this fire hose of dopamine that we really weren't adapted uh, to deal with. And that, that's what we're struggling with today. Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights. Welcome to the Collective Insights Podcast. I am your host for today's episode, Dr. Dan Stickler, and I have the pleasure of having Dr. Anna Lemke here. And this is someone who I've been wanting to have a conversation with after reading her book. She's a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. Dr. Lemke is also a leading mind in the opioid crisis and the author of Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine overloaded world. Welcome, Dr. Lemke. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I have all kinds of questions for you. Um, I want to start off with, with some basics to give people kind of a bit of a background in uh, what we're going to be talking about in, in this dopamine overload. So can you kind of give us the neuroscience behind the pleasure pain balance and how that works with dopamine? Sure. So uh, dopamine is a molecule we make in our brain. It's a neurotransmitter. It's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's also central to movement. And it's probably no coincidence that the same neurotransmitter involved in movement is also involved in pleasure, reward, and motivation. Um, things that are reinforcing or, or pleasurable release dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, which is a very specific neural circuit that's been identified over the past 50 to 100 years. The more dopamine that's released, uh, the more potentially addictive the substance or behavior is. Um, another really fascinating finding in neuroscience in the last 50 years or so is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain. So what that means is the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine that in your brain, there's a beam on a central fulcrum, kind of like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And that balance represents how we process pleasure and pain when we experience pleasure, we get a little release of dopamine in the reward pathway and the balance tips to the side of pleasure. And when we experience something painful, like touching our finger to a hot stove, uh, the balance tilts to the side of pain. But one of the overarching rules governing this balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be deviated for very long to one side or the other. Hence, our brains will work very hard to restore homeostasis or a level balance 
after any deviation from neutrality. And that has lots and lots of implications, both for becoming addicted, as well as implications for the ways in which our primitive wiring is mismatched for this modern ecosystem of overwhelming overabundance. And the bottom line is that the way that the brain restores homeostasis is first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So when I do something like eat a piece of chocolate, which I like, that releases dopamine in the reward pathway. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure. I feel good. But no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to that increased dopamine by downregulating my own dopamine production and transmission. And I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance. So unfortunately, they don't get off right at that level position. They stay on until I've tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate. Now, if I wait long enough, the gremlins hop off, the moment passes, and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But if I naturally reach for a second piece of chocolate, which in this world of overwhelming overabundance is easy to do, then essentially what happens is oh, that over time, I accumulate more and more gremlins on the pain side of the balance until I have enough gremlins to fill this whole room. And then I'm in a dopamine deficit state, which is akin to the addicted brain. Now I need that chocolate not to feel good, but just to restore a level balance. And when I'm not using, I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive thoughts of wanting to get my drug, otherwise known as craving. Now, is dopamine always associated with, um, with pleasure and reward in the brain? I mean, are there not other areas of the brain, different receptors, the D1, D2, that, that create different responses in that? Sense. Yeah, great, great question. So this balance is an oversimplification of the way that we process pleasure and pain. In fact, dopamine is very sensitive to novel stimuli that are not necessarily pleasure or pain, but that are just, uh, you know, a signal of news. Uh, this is something that you should pay attention to, which also speaks to why news in and of itself can be addictive and people can get actually addicted to uh, things like, you know, checking on the news. And dopamine is also, uh, can also be released in response to painful stimuli. Uh, it's a very famous experiment showing that if you take a, an, a, a rodent and you expose it to a very painful foot shock, you will see the same arborization in the brain reward pathway as you will to a single injection of cocaine. So it, you know, it's not just pleasure uh, that, that stimulates dopamine release. It's really the signal that we need to pay, pay attention to our environment. Now, there's also serotonin in the brain and you hear a lot of people talking about, you know, is the serotonin dopamine balance out and, and you, you haven't mentioned that yet, but how does that play into this homeostasis that we see? So there is, so addictive substances and behaviors or reinforcing substances, behaviors work through many different biological pathways. And in fact, what makes the substance addictive is that it mimics a chemical that 
our brain already makes, but it's usually in a much more potent, plentiful form. So for example, um, you know, we have our own endogenous opioid system, right? We make our own opioids, but our endogenous opioids last about half an hour. Whereas the opioids that we can make in a laboratory not only are much more potent than the endogenous opioids that we make, but they last much, much longer. Hence, they're very, very addictive, right? Because they're essentially hijacking this pathway. Same thing with serotonin. So serotonin is another important feel-good neurotransmitter. Um, it's a, the neurotransmitter that gives us that sense of attachment to others, love, uh, that sense of merging with the universe and oneness. And indeed, there are you know, chemicals like LSD that we ingest that release loads of, of serotonin, which is you know, why, why we use them, that that's the feeling that we're going, going for. So it's not, it's not just about dopamine. It's about all of these, you know, feel good neurotransmitters and hormones, the endogenous cannabinoid system, the endogenous opioid system, which I've mentioned the serotonin system, there's norepinephrine, but the final common pathway for all of these reinforcing chemicals in the brain is dopamine, which is why neuroscientists use it as a kind of common currency for measuring the addictive potential of drugs and behaviors. Nice. So I do some, um, I just delve into ecstatic states and, um, and states of awe. It's been an area that I've been very interested in over the years. Um, do you get the dopamine release with the states of awe as well? Oh, absolutely. That's a very powerful source. And you know that that's also accounts for these kinds of um, the kind of flow state that that people can get into with creative endeavors, um, this kind of kind of spiritual transformation or transcendence that people get when they actively engage in meditative or prayer or even more so collective um, religious experiences. So, um, dopamine is very one of the things that happens when we experience an emotion. At the same time as other people is that we get a release of dopamine because dopamine is released when we make those human uh, intimate human connections. That's part of why we want to be connected because it feels good to do that. And of course, experiencing the same emotion, not just as one other person, but as a very large group of other people at the same time, that's very reinforcing releases dopamine. So a lot of these um, experiences that basically are fundamentally adaptive for us um, will release dopamine. And we've evolved over millions of years to approach these kinds of dopamine releasing substances and behaviors, because for most of human existence, that is adaptive for us, right? Finding food, finding clothing, finding a warmth and shelter, finding a mate, um, having, uh, you know, collective religious experiences that um, more tightly bind the social group together. These are all highly adaptive. The problem is that now we have so much access to so many reinforcing drugs and behaviors, and they're so much more potent, and the quantity is endless, that now we've got this fire hose of dopamine that we really weren't adapted uh, to deal with, and that, that's what we're struggling with today. You've talked in, in that regard in, in the society, at the societal level there. You've talked about a... Um, kind of a narcissistic individualization that, that society is promoting. Um, and this wasn't, this wasn't always the case. I mean, you can read back on Abraham uh, Maslow's work where he visited the Indians and the person that had the, the greatest respect in the community was the person that shared the most. It wasn't about being the best at anything. Um, why have we 
gone down this road? What, what kind of transitioned us into that state? Well, I think it's a, it's just a natural byproduct of our economic system, um, you know, uh, which is not to say that capitalism is, is good or bad, but it, capitalism is about strivers and striving. Um, it's about trying to get to the top of the mountain and stay there as long as possible. That, that's, that's what capitalism fosters and promotes. And in many ways, um, you know, that's positive because it does bring out that work productivity um, in people and that striving element in people. But the dark, the dark side of that is that um, as we further individuate and attempt to distinguish ourselves from the larger tribe, um, we, we pay, a, I believe we pay a psychological price for that. And the psychological price is a kind of a self-loathing and shame that comes on the heels of separating ourselves from the group. And so when, you know, when we look at our society today, as you mentioned, one of the things that stands out is the kind of narcissistic self-aggrandizement and individuation and seeking of individual accomplishments. But the other thing that really stands out is the kind of a self-loathing uh, that people seem to experience on a scale that you know was not true 200, 500, 1,000 years ago. And I think that that self-loathing, um, contrary to you know popular wisdom, which would be to say uh, is because we haven't given people enough self-confidence, I don't really think it's about that. I think it's because we're we're not connected to each other. We're not we don't we're not connected to a tribe. We're very focused on our individual wants and needs. We're basically isolated, um, and I think that is the cause of so, so much. Why stuff. would that develop evolutionarily? I mean, you know, it would seem like the dopamine hits for the individuation achievements in, in that regard um, would be less so than for the the drive to contribute to the community and be part of a community, wouldn't it? Um, I think it really depends on whether or not you're getting the social goods from that community that are actually sustaining. I mean, I think you make a good point. It's like we have more people living alone today than ever before, you know, in the history of humanity. Why is it that we seem to be progressing toward more and more isolation? I mean, I do think it's just a, I think it really is a byproduct of the social structure. Um, you know, it's amazing the impact of culture and social institutions on human behavior. We like to think that it's sort of all about what we choose, but really, uh, we are very much at the mercy of the environment that we live in and the culture and social structures that we've created. And for reasons that I can't fully explain, we have created a culture uh, which separates us uh, to our detriment and certainly uh, to our misery. And I, I think part of the corrective that has to happen is that we have to sort of come to a reckoning around that, that capitalism for all its virtues in some regards, uh, we've paid an enormous price in, in terms of mental health and we need to figure, figure out how to kind of uh, get back to uh, some semblance of, of community really. And does societal norms uh, dictate a lot of what we perceive as dopamine hits then? 
Absolutely. I mean, what the society um, gives us accolades for, um, you know, what we consider to be achievement, what, what, how we get awards. I mean, our heroes today are Jeff Bezos, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Sergey Brin. Uh, you know, these are our, these are the people that we revere. Uh, and, and what have these people accomplished? I mean, I don't know any of these people individually, but they've they've managed to amass an enormous amount of money, at, you know, uh, that they've essentially generated on the backs of other people's labor. So those are our heroes. <laughs> well, and then social media shows all these uh, these influencers and everybody with all of the uh, flying on the private jets, enjoying the yeah. vacation from the Caribbean. And, and I think that that's going to be a huge contributor as well. On that. Yeah, yeah. And I and I think, you know, we think that's what we want, you know, that kind of accumulation of material wealth. And it's so cliched, but still so very true that, um, you know, if we're able to be a part of that 1% of the 1% who amasses all of that, I mean, those people are not happy. Um, you know, and it, it's not, it's, uh, it, and it's not clear that they're actually contributing good to the world. So I mean, is there not the the intrinsic happiness that we can generate versus the the external uh, validation for happiness? Well, you know, I, I think we are such social creatures that we do need that external validation. You know, I I know in my younger years, I tried to convince myself that I didn't care what other people thought. Now, in my fifties, I openly admit I really care. You know, I and I think that's that's a, not a socially that's not a bad thing. We're 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 hive creatures, right? We we do care what other people think. We should care. It does matter. Um, but you know, what are the sort of what are the benchmarks for um, how to be a good person? How to how to live a, a good life? These are all things that I think we're we're having to reevaluate now. Well, I spent the first. Uh... Uh, 10 years of my medical career as a general and vascular surgeon. And, uh, and I truly didn't care what anybody thought. I mean, I had zero empathy too. I mean, it was just not there. Uh, and it wasn't until really understanding the depth of love that I have for my partner. She was instrumental in that, but all of a sudden I have empathy and I'm like, what is this? You know, I, yeah. I'd always intellectualized love and empathy, and then suddenly I'm feeling it. Mm. Um, and I think, I think societally, I had to shut down really feeling emotions and just really intellectualizing the emotions there. That's fascinating. And what do you, what do you think were the factors that led you to have to shut down that emotional empathic part of yourself? Well, I think as a surgeon, you almost have to really push empathy aside, um, but I would do it, I guess I did it more so than just being in surgery. I also did it um, when I was at home. And so it just, I didn't understand the need for empathy. I was like, why would, why would I want to feel what somebody else feels? I mean, <laughs> I, I have compassion for them, but I don't want to feel their feelings. Uh-huh, Yeah. No, well, thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I do think at the at the at the risk of sounding sexist, I do think this is a hard time for men and boys. I mean, it's a it's a, I think it's a hard time, paradoxically, to to be alive. Anyway, there are all kinds of um, unanticipated stressors having to do with having uh, too much time and too many choices and too much access to cheap pleasures, as I talk about, but. Um, I do think it's a diff especially difficult time for men and boys to kind of figure out where they fit in here. 
you know, we have five boys in their early twenties and, uh, watching them navigate this. And, you know, fortunately we're, we are with crowds of people here in Austin who are very, very open about, you know, what it means to be an adult, uh, you know, there's so many, uh, what we call adult children that never really get that rite of passage and, and understand what it is to, to be in, especially in the archetype of the man. Um, we see a lot of misconceptions around that. And I think that creates a lot of angst and they go for dopamine hits to kind of, yeah. kind of come through that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And I think these are important, really valuable and important questions. I'm glad, so glad you're having them with your kids and in your community, sort of trying to redefine, you know, what is the good life? Yeah, you know, that's an area I want to get into with you too, because I, I can remember, I think it was some talk I listened to recently that you did, and it was about psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm involved with a bunch of the people in the Austin community. I mean, psychedelics is ubiquitous. I mean, you, you go out to a party and all of a sudden you see everybody's like in, in cuddle puddles or, you know, they're uh, having these otherworldly conversations. But um, you had mentioned that you you felt like the the different psychedelics and in psychedelics, I'm also including the, the enactogens like MDMA. Um, you had said that you felt that they were addictive. And I'd like to go down that and, and talk a little bit about that. Sure. I think it's important to start with the definition of addiction. So there's no brain scan or blood test for addiction. We base it on phenomenology. And the broadest definition is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others which means that mental preoccupation with using a drug again is one of the symptoms of addiction, as well as the come down, which can also be quite subtle um, in the form of, again, these universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, irritability, thinking of MDM, MDMA or thinking about Blue Mondays. Um, you know, and those, those, comes down, those come downs are real. Um, and the mental preoccupation of, you know, with using the drug um, can is also happens with psychedelics. So even though people talk about this idea, well, the physiologic tolerance develops so quickly uh, that people don't, you know, tend to use again or repeat their use or want to use more over time. But that's not the sine qua non of addiction. The sine qua non of addiction is, again, the continued compulsive use of a substance uh, despite harm to self and or others. And often that harm is not within our capacity to truly observe, but needs to come from the people around us saying, hey, you know, I've kind of noticed this or that, and it can be quite subtle. So I just think it's, it's just a fact that if you are ingesting a drug that is massively changing your brain, um, whether the feelings that you get from it are happy or sad, that essentially your brain will have to adapt to that experience in ways uh, that could lead you to compulsively uh, invest a lot of time, energy, money, you name it, into wanting to repeat that experience and to be avoidant with regular real life, which is, you know, at times uh, boring, um, at other times, extremely difficult and challenging. And I really feel like our task as modern humans is to stop trying to alter our mental status uh, so that you know we're, we're, we're not present 
and instead, you know, face the world that is as it is and, and try to be fully present uh, just with the, you know, the brain chemistry we've been given. Now, um, you know, I have different experience with that. Not that I have firsthand experience with it, um, but I have observed a bunch of my friends that are, that are into using psychedelics um, periodically. And I don't see the criteria of uh, addiction necessarily with them, you know, from my medical experience of addiction, which is very limited, but, you know, I don't see the, uh, the dependence on it. I don't see the withdrawal from it. Uh, I don't see the tolerance development from it. Um, I mean, most of the people, I mean, if I see them take MDMA, they take it like maybe once every quarter. Um, mushrooms, people will tell me, they say, you don't want to do mushrooms more than every so many weeks. It's just, it's not, it doesn't feel that way. Um, so in my experience with it, the, the ones that I have seen that have been experimenting with it, and it's interesting because I see profound changes in them too. Um, and, and I'm not talking about like in a negative way, I'm talking about it in a very positive pro-social, pro-community way. Um, that's beautiful to watch. Yeah, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad we're ha having this conversation. It's great. Um, so let me just first say that just because um, a person can use a drug and not get addicted to the drug doesn't mean that the drug is not addictive, right? So the vast majority of people who drink alcohol don't get addicted to alcohol. Oh yeah, I'm, I was just going by the the criteria yeah. of addiction yeah. that we use in medicine. Sure. So what you're observing is that you know anecdotally in your in your community or in the people that you know, you don't see uh, addiction playing out. But I can tell you, in my population, I see I see people getting addicted to psychedelics. Um, you know, repeatedly pursuing use of that drug at a very high cost. Any particular uh, one that you see more common? Um, you know, I've seen them all. It really depends on drug of choice, right? Some people get addicted to pornography, some people to cannabis, and some people to ecstasy or Is psychedelics. That like alcohol, though, where you have 10 to 15% of the population that are more prone to be yeah. addicted I versus the ones that are not. That's right. That's right. But the other thing to keep in mind too, which is a, a, an increasingly common picture that we're seeing in addiction medicine is the problem of polypharmacy. So folks who may use MDMA once a quarter, but they're using cannabis on the other days and alcohol on some of those days and, you know, uh, you know, psilocybin on some days. So that the net effect is that frequently, like maybe every day, they're essentially, um, you know, ingesting some kind of mind. Looking for an alteration. Right, yeah. exactly, um, exactly. So, you know, I think the other thing, the other danger here with psychedelics, you know, because it sounds like, oh, first of all, let me just also go back to saying, it sounds like anecdotally, you're seeing benefit in these people's lives. And, you know, that's great. And, and, and I believe you. And that's why, um, you know, these agents are being studied. But I think, you know, we can't put the cart before the horse and say, uh, these agents have medicinal value without the data. And we don't have the data yet. It's, it's the data are really not impressive for the use of psychedelics and MDMA and, and frankly, ketamine as well as having, um, you know, therapeutic benefits for mental health disorders. Um, you know, a recent study comparing an SSRI, Lexapro, 
to uh, psilocybin in the treatment of, I think it was major depression, showed that, you know, that they were sort of equal and that both had sort of modest effects. So that if that's true, you know, we're not dealing with like a groundbreaking drug here to treat depression. We're dealing with something that seemed to, in a small cohort, in a limited design study, uh, work sort of about as well as Lexapro. And Lexapro, we know is safe, right? We, it's been FDA approved. It's been in the community for a really long time. Uh, people don't get you know, persistent hallucinogen disorders from it. People don't become psychotic uh, from it. So I think that's where, it, that's my concern. We've got this sort of like, kind of a narrative that the media has really promoted that number one, they're not addicted. And number two, that people have this as spiritual awakening and it can treat their mental health disorder. Well, wait a minute, right? Wait a minute. Um, you know, let's way back up and, and really look at the evidence because the evidence, you know, at least, you know, the scientific evidence that we, we rely on now is, is not, you know, robust. Yeah, I had a uh, conversation with uh, Gold Dolan, um, researcher at Hopkins, about a year and a half ago, and uh, she was doing the research with MDMA out there. And one of the interesting aspects of that is she found that a single dose of MDMA opened up the social developmental window of the brain for about a 10-day period after taking it, and that she felt that there were a lot of benefits from that in the fact that people who have, you know, we typically close that social developmental window by 15, maybe at most get to 20. And then we're kind of locked into our, our social developmental aspects. But, you know, here we are, you know, 20, 30 years after that, and we're still in that social developmental stage. Um, could there not be a benefit from the MDMA in that situation? Well, I guess I, a couple couple questions, like how did she measure that? You know, how, how did she measure? Well, she was working predominantly with autistic uh, okay. children at that point, but um, she also had some rat studies on it. Um, I mean, her big uh, dive was in the, the parvocellular versus magnocellular oxytocin receptors in the, uh, in the uh, hypothalamic brain. Okay, I mean, I guess I'd, I'd want, I really want to read the study. You know, in general, those studies are very short term. Uh, they're a small N, so not very many participants. Um, and I think, you know, subsequent studies have not borne out some of the early promise. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I, I just think it's important. Which it's not, it's not to say that, you know, I, I believe uh, that people can have enriching experiences um, that can change their lives in a positive direction with psychedelics. I, I have um, encountered, you know, uh, people, friends in my own life, friends and acquaintance, acquaintances who attest to that. But, you know, that, that's still to me not yet sufficient to say this is a therapeutic to treat this disorder. That, that's a, those are very, very different things. Um, you know, as they always talk about in the psychedelic world, set and setting matter. Um, and to assume that the office setting of a psychiatrist is necessarily going to be a therapeutic setting for psychedelics, I think is, is premature. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, yeah, I just, um, you know, 
I followed the research on this a lot because I'm hoping at some point that the, sure. um, the MDMA therapy will be available because I've seen some really good results. One thing we use in our clinic is uh, ketamine nasal spray. And um, the hardest thing for me to ever wean somebody off of, I mean, harder than the, those addicted to cocaine has been SSRIs. Mm -hmm. um, and most of them are prescribed for reasons of just feeling bad and not true depression. And then these people are locked in on that. And we see brainwave changes. We, we do QEGs on all of our clients every year. And we see some significant changes that are occurring relating to those SSRIs. Um, we found this accidentally. Uh, we, were, we do neuromodulation with uh, neurostimulation. Um, and we found that ketamine nasal spray facilitates the uptake of, of patterns when we're inducing them. You know, this is all anecdotal. We're hoping to get in a larger study with the uh, University of Texas uh, here in Austin. But um, we accidentally found that people can come off SSRIs and rather quickly, you don't even have to go through the waning process and they have no distress over coming off of them when they use the ketamine nasal spray and then they just stop the ketamine nasal spray and they're all good. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, do you have any experience with that or why that is yeah. so difficult to get people off of? I mean, you talk about addiction. I think SSRIs are, are one of the biggest addictions. Yeah. So, I mean, again, sort of physical dependence and addiction certainly overlap. Um, and I agree with you that some people have a very hard time getting off of SSRIs and have, you know, neuroadaptive changes that are difficult to reverse and require a very slow taper over time. I've certainly seen that clinically. Um, you know, I suspect a lot of it depends on quantity and frequency, right? How, how big the dose is, how over what length of time you're using it, um, which then does speak to the level of neuroadaptation to that chemical. The higher the dose and the longer the person's on it, the more neuroadaptation there will be and the hard, harder it will be to get off. And, and I suspect that would be true for ketamine too. Um, and again, you know, you're going to have people, there's this whole drug of choice concept, which is really important. You're going to have some people who are susceptible to uh, ketamine addiction and K-holes and things, and other people who, who aren't. And that's true for cannabis and alcohol and, and you name it. Um, and it's not going to be the same person necessarily. So someone, one person who might be very vulnerable to an alcohol addiction might not be vulnerable, you know, to a ketamine addiction and vice versa. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of really having kind of a, a humble and healthy respect for these molecules to be really careful and thoughtful um, and explore how they might be helpful, but make sure that we simultaneously are looking for other ways in which uh, these things can go wrong. Because I think there's just too many examples throughout the history of medicine of saying, oh, this is going to be the miracle cure. This is going to be the thing that, you know, uh, relieves physical and mental pain with no addictive potential and no, and then, you know, whether it's one year or five years or 20 years down the road, you know, you've, we've got, we've got a, you know, a major addiction problem. So just, just like a little bit of a cautionary, a cautionary kind of request. Yeah, I, I mean, I see a lot of that in the community of, of people attributing the, all these characteristics to the psychedelics that, we just, we don't know. And, and they're promoting this with other people. And I'm just like, no, that's, 
We don't know that. That's not the case. And and they act like they're safe because it's plant medicine. Right. Right. You no, know, uh, you got to yeah. be careful with that stuff. Yeah. Um, so I want to get back to dopamine. We kind of got sidetracked there for quite a while. No, okay. I appreciate you opening that up and uh, and really allowing my questions on it. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't mention my my son Nathan. He works at this place called Kuya here in Austin, and they they do float tanks and they do uh, cold plunge and sauna. So he is a huge fan of like getting in the cold plunge, hanging out in there, and then running over and sitting in the sauna. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in the book about the dopamine hit that yeah. occurs with cold plunge. So I'm going to go into that a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, this is the science of hormesis and hormesis is Greek for to set in motion. And essentially what it is, is this idea that by exposing ourselves intentionally to mild to moderate toxic or painful stimuli, we actually do the body good. And why is that? Because the body senses injury and then starts to upregulate or increase production of our own feel-good neurotransmitters and hormones. So instead of ingesting them from the outside, we make our own. And the and ice cold water plunges are clearly a way to do that. So, um, you know, there's there are studies showing that if you immerse yourself, there was a study taking adult males and immersing them in an ice cold water bath over an, for an hour, and seeing that and measuring dopamine levels in their brains and finding that. Dopamine levels um, increased gradually over the course of the ice cold water bath, but most importantly, dopamine levels remained elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels. And we all have a baseline tonic level of dopamine firing. This is really powerful because what it says is, hey, there's a way we can get our dopamine by paying for it up front and doing these things that are painful. Exercise is another uh, you know, perfect example of that. Intermittent fasting is probably another example of that. And any kind of mind-body work that requires this effortful engagement. And contrast that <clears throat> with intoxicants, where we take it and we immediately get a spike in dopamine, followed very quickly on the heels by a dopamine free fall, not just to baseline levels, but actually below baseline, that dopamine deficit state, which then drives craving for another hit. Now, if we can withstand the craving and we have enough brain plasticity, then you know, we'll eventually get back up to baseline firing. But what it means is that it does make us vulnerable to this overconsumption, repeated use, which ultimately can reset our hedonic or joy set point. Whereas ice cold water baths, exercise, and other hormetic forms um, you know, get us our dopamine indirectly without that dopamine deficit state. So, okay, so you don't get addicted to the cold baths, cold plunges, because of the prolongation of the dopamine release? Is that what you're saying? Well, basically, it's much harder to get addicted to, to, okay. to painful things. You, you still can. I mean, I've had patients addicted to exercise. I had a patient that I talk about in the book who was on his way to getting addicted to ice cold water baths, kept upping the ante. You know, first he got a meat locker, uh, and then he got a motor to circulate the water to keep it colder. You know, and then he had to like make it so cold that he was breaking the ice on the surface of it. So yeah, we're, you can get addicted to pain, but it's just much harder because you have to put in so much effort up front to tolerate the pain. And so we're much less likely to get to that point. Of course, I will say in this day and age where, you know, scientific innovation 
has allowed technology to enhance all human experiences, it has become easier to get addicted to things like exercise, which would have been much harder to do 50 or 100 years ago. Let's just take the treadmill as an example, right? Or, or other gym machines. Those machines, you know, in part because they make it you know, convenient and easy to exercise year round. The repetitive nature of it is probably has a soothing quality. The way that we can quantify um, our heart rate, the distance we covered, the elevation, enumerating things or giving them numbers makes them more reinforcing. We also know this from social media or video games, the likings, the rankings. Um, and for all those reasons, we can take something like exercise, which really is fundamentally healthy, and we can drugify it and make it more addictive. One of the experiments that I absolutely love that I talk about in the book is that um, neuroscientists used to think that the running wheel in a rat's cage was just a measure of healthy, um, healthy exercise or movement. But what they slowly came to realize was that the rodents could actually get addicted to the running wheel. And some rodents would run so much on the running wheel that they would actually run, to, run themselves to death. And some of them, they would run so much that, you know, if they made it the running wheel smaller and smaller, they would curve up their tails to match the shape of the running wheel and eventually end up with the tails permanently curved, right? So, so, you know, rats got addicted to running wheels. And then my absolute favorite experiment from the Netherlands where they put a running wheel in nature, thinking, well, here, here we are in nature. There's no going to be no animal that's going to use the running. No, it turns out all kinds of animals came and used. Like there was something about that, you know, um, going against gravity in that horizontal and vertical way, like an amusement park ride, that, you know, organisms find reinforcing, including humans. So I just think it's, it, it's interesting to think about how we've reached this point where really everything has become drugified. <laughs> Yeah, I just wish we could sustain it, you know. Yeah, right. No, it's that that's the problem. I mean, if it's a, that really good feeling all, all at once, uh, you know, it's it's probably dangerous. It's like the yin yang. You can't know the the highs without knowing the lows. That's uh, true. That's true. Well, this has been a uh, very enlightening talk, and I love that you kind of finished it out with the all these hormetic things um in life, because I think that's the the key is to constantly keep the body off guard from normalcy, from routine. And, you know, you talk a little bit about that with the, um, with the dopamine fasting, which I encourage everybody to read this book and, um, and dig into some of these topics and some of the how-tos uh, that Dr. Lemke goes into. So I appreciate your time today and I appreciate you indulging me on my, uh, my off, uh, off script questions for you. Yeah, no, I love it. That's great. I, I think, you know, we have to have these conversations. We shouldn't be afraid of them. So I, I really appreciate our dialogue today. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. You're very welcome. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. 
Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.